Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Nathan Leopold, Richard Loeb, Clarence Darrow, and the crime of the century. Now let's get started with our story about Leopold and Loeb. On May 21, 1924, at 2.30 in the afternoon, in the Kenwood section of Chicago, classes had just concluded at the Harvard School for Boys. This private institution served many of the male adolescents and teenagers who lived in what was then one of the wealthiest areas of the city. Once dismissed, a large group of students left the school's main building and made their way to Harvard's baseball field to begin a game between a group of the school's freshman class. After several hours, one of the students, 14-year-old Robert E. Bobby Franks, who initially served as the game umpire, decided to leave and head to his house, which was only three blocks away, on the northwest corner of 51st and Ellis Avenue. Bobby crossed Ellis Avenue in front of the school and proceeded south in the direction of his home. Nearby, another child, a 10-year-old boy named Erwin Hartman, was walking on the other side of the street in the opposite direction. He remembered a car slowly passing him, turning onto East 48th Street, and then doubling back in his direction on Ellis Avenue on the other side of the street. As the car slowly moved towards him, he could still see Bobby Franks a few feet in front of the automobile. The 10-year-old was then distracted by a flower bed on his side of the street and momentarily looked away. A few seconds later, he looked back in Franks' direction, but Bobby was gone, and the car was moving rapidly down Ellis before quickly turning onto East 50th Street. Hartman didn't see Bobby get into the car, but thought little of the incident until days later. At the Franks' house, as the dinner hour approached, Bobby Franks' parents began to wonder where their son was. Jacob and Flora Franks were the type of typically wealthy family that populated the Kenwood neighborhood. Jacob Franks' wealth initially stemmed from a pawn shop he inherited from his parents known as Franks Collateral Loan Bank. Franks eventually diversified his business interests, first into separate watch and watch case manufacturing companies, and then into various real estate and stock investments, which generated a net worth of at least $1.5 million 1924 dollars, equivalent to about $27 million today. With his wife, Jacob was raising three children, including Bobby, Josephine, 17, and Jack, 15, Neither of his older children had any idea where Bobby was, and Jacob Franks then telephoned several of Bobby's friends asking if they knew anything. The only information he received was that Bobby had umpired the baseball game and left before it ended, presumably to go home. But no one had seen him afterwards. The Franks' house was large enough and the family wealthy enough to afford servants, and when a maid inquired at 7 p.m. if dinner should be served— Jacob and Flora decided to sit down and eat with the family, hoping that Bobby would scurry in at any moment with some explanation as to what had held him up. But at the conclusion of the meal, there was still no sign and not even a phone call from the 14-year-old. Jacob Frank's irritation was starting to turn to anxiety. Looking for advice, Bobby's father called attorney Samuel Edelson, a politically well-connected family friend. Edelson tried to reassure the elder Franks, but offered to come right over. At nine o'clock, the two men reviewed exactly where Bobby might be, deciding that it was a possibility 
that he might have somehow been accidentally locked in at the Harvard School. They contacted several school officials and only managed to get a hold of the athletic director, who did not have a key but came over to help in the search anyway. With the front door locked, the search party managed to enter the building through an open basement window. The group circulated throughout the building, shouting Bobby's name to no avail. While Jacob Franks was down the street at the Harvard School, the phone rang at the Franks residence. Flora Franks answered, the caller requesting to speak to Jacob Franks. When she explained that Mr. Franks was unavailable, the caller bluntly stated, Your son has been kidnapped. He is all right. There will be further news in the morning. Flustered, Mrs. Franks could only stammer, Who is this? Johnson was the reply. Flora Franks practically shouted into the phone, What do you want? But the caller hung up without another word. Bobby's mother actually fainted and was still woozy when her husband returned with Edelson. Flora explained what happened, and Jacob Franks quickly ushered his now hysterical wife to her bedroom. Franks then returned downstairs, and both he and Edelson decided not to inform the police, reasoning that a potential wave of publicity might prompt the kidnappers to panic and kill Bobby. They figured that those responsible would contact them relatively quickly, and that it was best to gauge what exactly they were dealing with before they went public. But by early morning, the only contact they received was from one of Bobby's teachers they had contacted earlier in the evening. At 10.30 p.m., Walter Wilson, a Harvard School math teacher who lived in the neighborhood, knocked on the Franks' front door, only to have Edelson answer it. And after brusquely asking a few questions about the last time the teacher saw Bobby Franks, the attorney then shut the door, telling Wilson nothing about the situation and only that they would be in touch if they had any further questions. At 1.30 in the morning, nearby the Franks' home at Greenwood Avenue and 49th Street, a night watchman named Bernard Hunt observed a car as it slowed down. An individual in the rear seat suddenly leaned out of the window and tossed an object into the street. Curious, Hunt ambled over in that direction and quickly spotted the discarded item, a metal chisel that had tape around the blade. Upon further examination, he noticed what seemed to be blood on the unwrapped handle of the implement. Hunt decided to turn the suspicious item over to the police. At 2 a.m., Jacob Franks, both impatient and anxious, decided that it might be best to contact the police as discreetly as possible. Edelson had some Chicago Police Department contacts, including the chief of detectives, so both men headed to Chicago's downtown main police station to talk to some of these higher-ups. But at this time of the morning, the person in charge was a Lieutenant Welling, who immediately offered to begin a search. Edelson begged off, saying that he did not want to alarm the kidnappers and that he and Franks would come back in the morning when the top brass was on duty. Welling agreed, and the two men headed back to Kenwood as dawn approached. Early on Thursday morning, May 22nd, a man named Tony Mankowski was walking along a path near Wolf Lake, a small body of water about a mile from Lake Michigan and about 20 miles south of metropolitan Chicago, near the Indiana border. Mankowski had just finished the night shift at a nearby milling operation and was running an errand. Wolf Lake was separated from Hyde Lake by a shallow channel, this connection bisected by a track belonging to the Pennsylvania Railroad. A cement culvert underneath the rail line connected the two lakes underneath the railroad track. As Mankowski approached this culvert, he saw something disturbing protruding from the mouth of the cement conduit. He climbed down to get a better look at what he thought he saw. As he drew closer, he was stunned by what appeared to be a body floating in the shallow waterway, the feet sticking out of the culvert. Simultaneously, he observed two railroad handcars on the tracks coming in his direction. Frantically, he signaled to this group of railroad workers, a crew involved in equipment and track repair. This four-man contingent was supervised by Paul Korff. 
Korf told both cars to stop in Mankowski's vicinity and approach the excited man. Unfortunately, Mankowski, a recent Polish immigrant, was shouting in Polish, which Korf, of German descent, did not understand. The pole was able to point down toward the culvert, and Korf quickly descended towards this area. When his crew asked what was going on, he yelled up to them that it looked like someone had drowned and asked for help, pulling the body out of the knee-deep water. Only two bare feet were visible outside of the cement passageway. The group quickly pulling the face-down body out of the water and carrying it up to dry land. Turning it over, they observed a young boy, naked and clearly deceased. A crew member ran up and got a tarp from one of the hand cars, the body placed on top of it, and then carried by the group into one of the vehicles. Korf was intent on a nearby phone box along the tracks where he could call the police, but before he left the area, he decided to quickly look around to check if there was some clothing or items that might shed light on just how the individual wound up in the water. The only object he discovered was a pair of eyeglasses, which he pocketed, not sure whether they were even related to the body. While the crew and Mankowski waited for the police at the phone box, Korf took out the glasses and tried them on. They were a poor fit, and the prescription was quite strong. A co-worker, Walter Knitter, asked where he got them, and Korf explained what had happened. Knitter rubbed the dirt and dust off of them and put them on. They fit perfectly, and Korf, probably anticipating his co-worker's request, told Knitter to keep them. As these early morning events were transpiring, a postman knocked on the door of the Frank's residence and gave the servant who answered a special delivery letter. Handed the envelope in his study, Jacob Franks tore it open. It contained two sheets of paper with specific instructions regarding the ransom of Frank's son. The parents were warned not to contact the police with details of the ransom note, even if they had already notified law enforcement. If they did not follow instructions, the letter stated that their son's death would be the penalty. The kidnapper or kidnappers demanded a ransom of ten thousand dollars, two thousand and twenties, eight thousand and fifties, the currency to be used and not noticeably crisp. Additional explicit instructions concerning the means of delivery, a cigar box container secured with sealing wax, were also included, as well as a request to keep the phone line open after one PM, after which time Further instructions for the cash delivery would be provided. The letter closed with a promise that if demands made to the Franks were followed, their son would be returned safely, and was signed, George Jackson. Flora Franks insisted on reading the letter and promptly fainted again. Edelson then advised Franks to get the money from his bank while he, Edelson, met with his contact, the chief of detectives. While this transpired, near Wolf Lake, police responded to 133rd Avenue and the railroad tracks where the repair crew and Mankowski were waiting. Policeman Antony Schipino examined the body and was not happy that it was moved, but understood that these individuals were only trying to help. After asking the group if they noticed anything else, Korf mentioned that he didn't find any clothing, but did find a set of eyeglasses. Chapino asked for them, and Roger Knitter reluctantly turned them over. Eventually, the body was removed to a funeral home, where Chapino, assuming that the glasses were owned by the unknown victim, gave them to the proprietor, who then placed them on the deceased's face. Although exactly where and how several Chicago newspapers got wind of Bobby Frank's disappearance has never been determined, but a city editor assigned a 24-year-old reporter named James Mulroy to check on a tip that he received that Sam Edelson was talking to the police about a kidnapping of an as-yet undetermined individual. Edelson, when contacted in his office by Mulroy, was initially angry but eventually confirmed the details of what he knew. After the reporter relayed this information, Mulroy's editor then told him to head over to the Franks' house 
where the newspaper man was actually able to talk himself inside by claiming he would be less obtrusive in the event the house was being watched. Reluctantly, Jacob Franks agreed. By the time he got there, Edelson was also there, and Mulroy told him what he knew about an unidentified boy's body in a funeral home. Mulroy passed along the description, which included approximate age, height, weight, and that the deceased was wearing glasses. And initially, Edelson and Jacob Franks brushed him off, stating emphatically that Bobby didn't wear glasses. But by early afternoon, and with no contact from the kidnappers, Edelson figured it couldn't hurt to at least check out the funeral home lead. He asked Flora Frank's brother, Eddie Gresham, to head over and take a look. He cautioned him that when he called to update Edelson, because the phones were tapped, Gresham was to just say either yes or no. The attorney was stunned when in less than an hour the phone rang, the attorney quickly picking up the receiver. It was Gresham who said yes and hung up. Edelson barely had time to gently tell Jacob Franks what he knew out of earshot of Mrs. Franks when the phone rang again. It was the alleged George Jackson. He asked for Jacob Franks and then told him that in a few minutes a taxi cab would pull up in front of the Franks' home. He was then to proceed to a drugstore at 1465 East 63rd Street. Franks hung up the phone and in his shock and confusion, immediately forgot the address. When the cab pulled up to the front of the Frank's house and the cabbie knocked on the front door, Edelson confronted him, asking who sent him and what address was the destination. All the cabbie knew was that a Mr. Jacob Franks had called for a cab and that the cabbie had no idea where they were going. Edelson retreated back into the library, and after conferring with Jacob Franks, they both decided that there was no point and getting in a cab without even knowing where he was supposed to go, especially if they already knew that Bobby was dead. Edelson went back to the front door, but by that time, the impatient cabbie had been given a few coins by another friend of the family present to provide support, and the cabbie was sent on his way. A few minutes later, the phone rang in the phone booth at the Van de Bogert and Ross drugstore at 1465 East 63rd. A porter sweeping the floor near the phone picked up the receiver, the caller asking, Is Mr. Franks there? The porter said that there was no one there by that name, and the caller then claimed he had a wrong number and hung up. A few seconds later, the phone rang again. This time, the druggist, Perry Van de Bogert, answered. Again, the caller asked for a Mr. Franks. Van de Bogert responded, saying that he did not know a Mr. Franks. The caller then gave the druggist a detailed description of someone who might be standing in the vicinity, complete with the detail that he would be smoking a cigarette. Just to make sure, Van de Bogert put down the receiver and took a good look around the store and the area by the front door, and seeing no one at all, told the caller that there was no one there. The druggist then heard a click and went back to work. The news that a young boy had been abducted and murdered was sensational news all over the city of Chicago. Jacob Franks offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the kidnappers slash murderers. The chief of police, Morgan Collins, added another $1,000 and assigned a contingent of several hundred police to the area around Wolf Lake and the Harvard School. This contingent was coordinated by both the chief and the Cook County State's attorney, Robert E. Crow, essentially the DA for the city of Chicago and the surrounding area. Crow, an experienced politician who was first elected in 1917, became the public face of the investigation. Initially, there was very little to go on, and much of the police attention focused on teachers at the Harvard School who knew Bobby Franks and who knew how wealthy the Franks family was. Additionally, the physical evidence, the ransom note, and the eyeglasses, which were now in the hands of detectives, in and of themselves would not immediately furnish a suspect. During their scouring of the Wolf Lake area, police detectives questioned the game warden of the forest preserve that was located nearby about any recurring visitors to the location. One of the names he revealed 
was that of Nathan Leopold Jr., a 19-year-old ornithologist and recent Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of Chicago, currently taking a class at the University of Chicago's law school. On Sunday morning, May 25th, two policemen were sent to Leopold's home to pick up the teenager for questioning. The house coincidentally in the Kenwood section near both the Harvard School and Bobby Frank's house. Leopold had plans for a date that Sunday and was initially resistant to coming down to the precinct. But the police assured him that their captain just wanted to ask some routine questions and if he brought his car, he would be back in no time. Once at the station, Leopold said he didn't wear glasses, but his interrogator, Captain Thomas Wolfe, didn't dwell on that. Instead, he asked for the names of any other frequent visitors to Wolf Lake that Leopold was aware of and had the young man fill out a written statement denoting the dates and times he, Leopold, had been at Wolf Lake and with whom. Leopold's whole interaction seemed completely normal, and the captain, not at all suspicious and deferential, knowing of the Leopold family's social stature, sent him on his way. Nathan Leopold Sr. was a second-generation shipping and manufacturing entrepreneur, his wife a member of a prosperous banking family, the Leopolds wealthy enough that Florence Leopold spent most of her time on philanthropic endeavors. However, Leopold Sr.'s wife died in 1922 after a lengthy illness. Because of her poor health, Nathan Jr. and his two brothers, Foreman, nicknamed Mike, and Sam, were raised by nannies and governesses. Nathan was the youngest child, sickly, with various glandular ailments, including hyperthyroidism and juvenile diabetes, and he was nicknamed Babe. On that Sunday, Babe Leopold was able to keep his date with Susan Laurie, an attractive, bright young student he met at a dance while both were attending the University of Chicago. Leopold took Susan to lunch and then a canoe ride along the Duplain River, an afternoon he remembered as idyllic, Susan reading from a book of French poetry that Leopold, an accomplished student at several languages, had given her. Across town, an event with a much more somber atmosphere was taking place. Because of the incredible public and media interest generated by the death of Bobby Franks, the Franks family decided to hold a small private funeral service in their home, as opposed to what might become a public circus. The Franks family were converts to Christian science from Judaism, and the affair consisted of various readings and hymns before a police escort accompanied the Franks procession to Rose Hill Cemetery, the pallbearers all fellow students from the Harvard School. For their part, the police were applying heavy pressure to two Harvard School teachers, detaining them for several days of questioning while lawyers for the suspects demanded their release from a Cook County Superior Court judge. This judge, Frederick DeYoung, probably considering the notoriety of the case, stalled longer than he normally would. But finally, when on Wednesday, May 28th, Prosecutor Crow admitted in another habeas corpus hearing that he had no hard evidence to charge either teacher, the judge ordered their release. These teachers, Walter Wilson and Mott Kirk Mitchell, both later asserted that they were physically abused during their time in custody, including beatings with a rubber hose, threats of strangling, and even defenestration from a 15-story window. Both teachers left the Harvard School, Wilson returning a year later, but Mitchell's exit was permanent. In fact, he relocated to the Los Angeles area, his ordeal souring him permanently on the city of Chicago. Prosecutor Crow delegated various investigative tasks to staff and members of the police department, but he considered the eyeglasses found at the crime scene so crucial that he asked his direct report, Assistant State's Attorney Joseph Savage, to personally develop any leads that might identify this object's owner. At the time, a prominent Chicago eyeglass manufacturer by the name of Almer Coe & Company had blanketed the city with newspaper advertising, boasting of prompt and efficient delivery of superior eyewear. Savage decided that this firm would be one of the first outlets that he contacted, 
and sure enough, the glasses in question were determined to have originated from Elmer Coe. A tiny diamond watermark on one of the lenses made this identification possible, but that, in and of itself, was not very helpful. There were thousands of such identical lenses sold, as well as the frames composed of a plastic material known as xylenite. But Savage caught a huge break when it was determined that the hinges used to assemble this particular style of glasses were quite unusual. They were manufactured by the Bobro Company of Brooklyn, New York, co the only distributor in Chicago that used these particular hinges. Whoever had purchased these glasses in the area had taken their prescription from their optometrist and could have only had it filled by Co. Because of its efficient filing system, employees at Co & Company were able to quickly sift through 54,000 records and determine that only three pairs of such glasses with the distinctive hinges had been sold by the firm. The first pair went to an attorney who was quickly determined to be in Europe the second to a woman who was visited by police and was able to produce her set of the glasses in question, and the third to a 19-year-old named Nathan Leopold, Jr. When Crow was informed of this development, he sent two detectives to the Leopold residence, probably unaware that Leopold had already been questioned in the case and had a Wolf Lake connection. Crow merely instructed the two investigators to determine if Leopold could produce his pair of glasses. Understanding the prominence of the Leopold family and skeptical that a 19-year-old with this background would have anything to do with such a crime, Crow was reluctant to interview the young man downtown. The press would have a field day, presuming that Leopold was a suspect in the case, and if it proved to be a dead end, Crow would alienate a major figure in the community. The detectives were told that if Leopold could not produce the glasses, to bring him to a room at the LaSalle Hotel for a personal interview with Crow. Despite his claims that the glasses, which he also claimed he now seldom wore, had to be in the house somewhere, Leopold could not locate them, only able to produce an empty eyeglass case with the Co. and Company emblem. Despite Leopold's protest that he had a regularly scheduled bird-watching excursion he needed to conduct, the police insisted. Within minutes, the 19-year-old was sitting in room 1618 of the LaSalle Hotel, across from State's Attorney Crow. Nathan Leopold, at age 19, was a remarkably intelligent individual who, in addition to his Phi Beta Kappa status, language fluency, and expertise in ornithology, had just taken formal examinations for admission to law school, in his case, Harvard University, which he expected to enter that very fall. But Robert A. Crow is no deeply intellectual academic. Although a graduate of Yale Law School, he was a product of Chicago's hard-boiled legal and judicial system, having served as both a prosecutor and a judge with a no-nonsense approach to crime and criminals, in 1919, he personally sentenced a defendant to death for the murder of a six-year-old girl and, as a judge, focused on facilitating speedy trials for any crime involving homicide, a framework that sent dozens of men to the gallows or life sentences. Initially aligned with the political machine of Mayor Big Bill Thompson, a notorious crook, Crow openly broke with the mayor and prosecuted some of his lieutenants to the extent that in 1923, Thompson did not stand for re-election. For Crow, the Franks kidnapping case presented a golden opportunity for the politically ambitious prosecutor. Initially, Crow wasn't sure what he was dealing with, but he figured he would immediately get to the bottom of who exactly owned the pair of glasses that came from Wolf Lake. He asked Leopold about them and even allowed him to examine them, Leopold clearly seemed puzzled, admitting that they looked like his, but stated he knew they couldn't be because he knew his were at home. Crow knew that if Leopold could produce the same style of glasses, he was exonerated. Again, not really sensing that the boy was involved in such a murder, he sent him back to his residence with three detectives, giving him every benefit of the doubt. When Leopold got home, his 29-year-old brother Mike greeted him and learning of the situation, began to help Nathan in a search of the house. 
When that was fruitless, Mike suggested that maybe Nathan had dropped them at the lake on one of his birding expeditions, a suggestion Nathan sheepishly acknowledged. Mike then suggested that they get a hold of Sam Edelson, also a friend of the Leopold family, who they quickly learned was not surprisingly at the Franks' home around the corner. All three of the detectives and the two Leopolds now went over to speak with Edelson. Nathan was introduced to Jacob Franks, and then the two Leopolds explained the circumstances and that most likely the glasses were accidentally left behind previously by Nathan on a bird-watching excursion. Edelson also had no inclination to doubt this explanation, and he sent both Leopolds back to the LaSalle, admonishing the lead detective that he was taking an interest in the case as Leopold's attorney, and Crow should inform him of any serious developments. While Nathan Leopold met with two assistant prosecutors, Savage and John Sparborough, Mike waited in an adjoining room. Within minutes, Nathan Leopold had to acknowledge that the glasses were his. He stuck to his story that he probably lost them on a visit there on May 17th or 18th, an outing he made with another bird enthusiast, George Lewis. Leopold was also asked why he had his glasses with him when in an earlier report, now dug out of the files, he claimed he rarely wore glasses. Leopold explained readily that he only got the glasses as a result of recurring headaches while reading. Eventually, the headaches went away, and he stopped using the eyeglasses. He most likely left them in the breast pocket of his jacket and didn't even know they were there. He also claimed to be wearing some ill-fitting boots that made him stumble a few times. The glasses must have fallen then. Savage then handed the glasses to Leopold and asked him to try to duplicate such a chain of events. The 19-year-old placed the glasses in his interior breast pocket and deliberately tumbled to the floor several times, but the glasses remained in his jacket. Leopold's interrogators then moved on to the specific day that Bobby Franks was murdered, asking Nathan to give them at least a general idea of what he personally did on May 21st. Initially, Leopold attempted to be evasive, claiming that he was very focused on studying for his law school examination and was so busy that this day would be hard to distinguish from any other. Experienced in their craft, Savage and Sparborough became impatient and irritated with the 19-year-old, reminding him that they were talking about a description of activities that occurred only eight days earlier. Grudgingly at first, because he claimed that he was embarrassed and what he did that day involved a friend named Richard Loeb he didn't want to involve, Leopold eventually detailed his activities on May 21st. They ate lunch together at the grill at Marshall Fields and then drove to Lincoln Park, ostensibly to look for birds, but also to while away the afternoon, drinking gin and scotch from flasks they brought with them. While Leopold claimed that by early evening, they were a little buzzed, but insisted they weren't drunk. He also added that they thought it was a good idea to eat dinner before they went home. They ate this meal at the Coconut Grove restaurant, only blocks away from where they lived. After that, they cruised around looking to pick up girls, successfully getting two to Jackson Park, where they drank and conversed, the girls reluctant to do anything more than chat. Eventually, the two females got out of the car and left and Leopold and Loeb went home. The two investigators reviewed this information, began to pepper Leopold with questions about specifics, the girls' names, what the two boys ate, how much they drank specifically, times of various events, who was awake when Leopold returned home, and many more. Details to be checked and corroborated to determine if this alibi was legitimate. Sparborough then asked Leopold about his background. Leopold explained that he had attended both the University of Michigan and the University of Chicago, transferring to the former institution and then returning to the latter where he graduated. He claimed to know 15 languages, including Greek, Russian, Sanskrit, even Hawaiian. He was deeply interested in ornithology and even lectured and led groups on birdwatching outings. He admitted to owning a typewriter and following developments in the Franks case closely and agreed that whoever wrote the ransom note was probably well-educated. He claimed he did not know Bobby Franks personally, but knew of the family 
based on their prestige in the neighborhood. At 1 a.m., the interrogation ceased for the night, but Nathan Leopold was not released. He was conveyed to the central police station, where his brother Mike was told he would rest for the night before the interrogation continued the next morning. Although Mike Leopold was never officially notified, Nathan Leopold was under arrest. Once Richard Loeb's name was mentioned, he also was brought to the LaSalle, placed in a separate room, and questioned until the early morning hours. He claimed he left Leopold around dinner time and mentioned nothing about picking up girls, an obvious contradiction that was certainly suspicious. The next morning, Leopold and Loeb found themselves in custody in separate police stations, Leopold at Crow's headquarters in the criminal courts building, Loeb at a nearby precinct house. By now, the press was aware that Leopold and Loeb had been detained and were buzzing certainly around Leopold, who was allowed to speak with them. Crow perhaps hoping he would say something illuminating or even incriminating. The 19-year-old discoursed on a wide-ranging bunch of topics that included everything from Nietzsche to belief in God. Richard Loeb Sr. was bedridden with heart trouble, but his wife, when contacted by reporters, was nonchalant, responding that her son would quickly and easily straighten things out. Nathan Leopold Sr., also commented to the press that he would allow the investigation to play out until his son was completely exonerated, adding, The suggestion that he had anything to do with this case is too absurd to merit comment. Neither family attempted to stop the interrogations or retain legal representation for either of the two suspects. The intensity of the newspaper frenzy concerning the case, especially in obtaining any kind of scoop, was underlined by the investigative reporting of two enterprising journalists from the Chicago Daily News, Alvin Goldstein and the aforementioned Mulroy. Having spoken to some of Leopold's study group colleagues at the University of Chicago Law School, these two determined that Leopold routinely typed up paraphrased notes as an aid for test preparation. On a hunch, they attempted to determine if any of these typed materials resembled the type that appeared in the ransom note. One of these study group members, Arnold Mermont, explained to Goldstein that he already knew from news accounts that the ransom note came from a portable Underwood or Corona, but he had observed Leopold using a much larger Hammond typewriter. But after thinking about it, he did remember one occasion where the five-member group worked together in the Leopold's home library as opposed to the smaller study and Nathan had used a smaller typewriter. Goldstein quickly got with his editor, who brought in an expert in typewriters and their unique imprints. Quickly, this individual declared that the ransom note and some of the legal note outlines were typed on the same machine, the type containing several unique quirks. The Chicago Daily News then gave this information to Crow who immediately reached out to all four other members of the group, including Marmont. These individuals were then questioned in Leopold's presence until it was determined that a portable was used by the group at Leopold's house. Leopold then grudgingly admitted that he might have used a portable, but suggested that it was from another student who he had worked with on Italian translations and maintained it might still be at his house. Although already late in the evening, Crow immediately sent another search party of detectives with Leopold to his home to attempt to locate this typewriter. Unbeknownst to Leopold, on a previous trip, a detective had asked the maid if there was a portable typewriter in the house, and she said that at least several weeks ago there was. Asked by detectives to confirm her statement with Leopold present, she did so, despite Leopold attempting to contradict her the maid not understanding the implication of this interaction. Upon returning to police headquarters, Leopold was again subjected to further questioning. Separately, another detective elicited the bombshell from the Leopold chauffeur that he was repairing the brakes on Nathan's automobile all day on May 21st and could prove it. In his absence that day, because of the long hours he had to put in, his wife needed to fill a prescription for their daughter, the medicine clearly purchased on May 21st. This demonstrated that not only had Loeb and Leopold lied about the vehicle they used on that date, they were most likely operating another automobile for some as yet undetermined purpose. 
was this piece of information that approximately 1 o'clock in the morning on May 31st that John Sparborough confronted Dickie Loeb with, emphasizing that there was no drinking and birding at Lincoln Park. There were no girls picked up and taken to Jackson Park, no meals taken casually in the neighborhood, just Dickie and Babe and a now-dead 14-year-old boy. Sparborough urged Loeb to confess. Dickie was stunned by the revelation concerning Nathan's automobile, understanding that it was evidence of a deliberate and provable lie by both Leopold and Loeb. And he probably understood that this was headed for an obvious conclusion. At 1.40 a.m., Crow was summoned, and Richard Loeb began to make a lengthy and detailed statement as to what he and Nathan Leopold had actually done on May 21, 1924. While this transpired, other interrogators confronted Leopold with the information gleaned from the family chauffeur. Leopold shrugged, said the chauffeur was mistaken, and the date on a prescription didn't mean anything. The 19-year-old remained smug and unwavering until shortly after 4 a.m., Crow suddenly entered the room. You might as well confess. Your friend has just told us the whole story. Leopold laughed, almost disdainful of what he thought he recognized as another theatrical law enforcement trick. But his expression gradually changed as Crow detailed the rental car agency where the two boys obtained an automobile, the fake name used to facilitate the transaction, the false hotel address used to help establish another identity, and numerous other damning details that only Dickie Loeb could know, especially the most important detail of who killed Bobby Franks. Finally, Leopold realized that further denials were useless. It was almost five in the morning when he began to give his own lengthy and factual statement concerning the murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks. At 6 a.m., with rumors already sweeping throughout the newspaper corps, waiting patiently for what they sensed was a critical bulletin, Robert Crowe stepped from his office. Although exhausted, with rumpled clothing and crooked tie, he was jubilant. He explained excitedly that the Franks' murder was solved, the two murderers were in custody, and they, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, had completely and voluntarily confessed. In a scene out of a Hollywood blockbuster, journalists scrambled for any available telephones to convey the headline back to respective headquarters. It wasn't long before newspaper extra editions flooded the streets of Chicago and the print and radio media began the process of fanning the Leopold and Loeb story from what was formerly a high-profile murder and kidnapping into a nationwide sensation. Chicago's most prominent newspaper, the Tribune, summed up this burgeoning phenomenon with this front-page explanation. The solving of the Franks kidnapping and death brings to notice a crime that is unique in Chicago's annals and perhaps unprecedented in American criminal history. The diabolical spirit evinced in the planned kidnapping and murder, the wealth and prominence of the families whose sons are involved, the suggestions of perversion, the strange quirks indicated in the confession that the child was slain not for a ransom, but for the experience combined to set the case in a class by itself. In early 20th century America, violent and lurid crime was already a commonly accepted fact of life, but criminal behavior was typically consigned to the lower classes and the mentally infirm. Dull-witted or economically desperate creatures who were too stupid, insane, or desperate to behave otherwise. But this case was something new. Literally two of the wealthiest teenagers in America killing another teenager not out of passion or even anger, but merely for the thrill of it. Such behavior was perceived as utterly bizarre, a gaping breach through a formerly clear societal partition. But over the next months and years, additional revelations about the specific details of both the relationship between Leopold and Loeb and their collaborative efforts denoted personalities that were deeply warped and disturbed. Richard Loeb also came from a wealthy family, but one that was much wealthier than even the Leopolds. Loeb's father, Albert, was an attorney, vice president, general counsel, and corporate secretary of the Sears and Roebuck Company, and a member of the company's original executive inner circle. His fortune was estimated at $10 million, about $180 million today. 
Dickie Loeb was the second of four boys, and initially an exceptional student, prodded by his governess, Emily Struthers, who felt he was intellectually gifted. Enrolled in the prestigious University High School at the age of 12, the surrogate parent Struthers continued to push him to finish high school in two years. Although successful, Loeb was deeply resentful over the amount of time that he was forced to spend studying. Entering the University of Chicago at age 14, Loeb's first year was marked by mediocre grades, the curriculum even more difficult than his high school classes, and his governess having been let go as no longer necessary. It was during this time period in 1920 that Loeb met Nathan Leopold. It was also when the two began to perpetrate petty acts of crime that included smashing car and store windows and starting fires. Dickie Loeb now out from under the governess who previously dominated his life. When Loeb decided to transfer to the University of Michigan for his sophomore year in 1921, Leopold decided to make the same transition. It was Leopold's intent to continue his close relationship with Loeb, but Dickey had other plans, getting involved in fraternity life at Zeta Beta Tau. Loeb was specifically told by his fraternity brothers that Leopold was not welcome. Already there were rumors about the two young men's relationship being possibly homoerotic. Dickey essentially abandoned his former friend. And Leopold, bookish, intellectual, non-athletic, and antisocial, spent a year either alone or with a small group of exiled non-fraternity individuals. After the school year concluded, Leopold decided to head back to the University of Chicago. Although Loeb spent most of his time at Michigan chasing girls, playing and cheating at cards, and drinking to excess, he completed his coursework in 1923, at 17, the youngest graduate in the history of the school. Returning to Chicago, he enrolled in a constitutional history class as a preamble most likely to law school. Leopold was already enrolled in U of Chicago law school classes and intended to transfer to Harvard. In the fall of 1923, Leopold and Loeb renewed their friendship. The rumors of a sexual relationship between the two were in fact accurate. Leopold participated in Loeb's petty criminal acts out of an intense attraction to the extremely good-looking, charismatic Loeb, who enjoyed Leopold's unusually deep intellect and philosophical viewpoints, typical of the philosopher's faddish resurgence on college campuses of the 20s, both students were devotees of the works of Friedrich Nietzsche, considering themselves, based on their intellect and social standing, the quintessential supermen, entitled to demonstrate their superiority by committing crimes and evading detection, behavior they considered deeply gratifying. It was in the fall of 1923 when the two began obsessing over and explicitly planning what they described as the perfect crime, an act that would be headlined throughout the city of Chicago. As a run-up to such a deed, Loeb and Leopold decided to burgle Loeb's former fraternity house in Ann Arbor, the type of act that would especially excite Loeb. The exhilaration of secretly transgressing against his former colleagues eliciting a special thrill. Fundamentally, unlike most criminals, money was never a motivation. Both individuals were provided with generous family allowances, and their parents would have provided even more money if asked. It was the thrill aspect that both teenagers enjoyed, not any material need. This became evident to Crow and the other investigators as they listened to the teenagers discussing their criminal evolution during their detailed confessions. This process took a decidedly more drastic turn with a caper that went way beyond vandalism or a petty crime. At 3 a.m. on November 11, 1923, Leopold and Loeb surreptitiously entered the ZBT house at the University of Michigan. Masked, both carrying guns, Loeb also was wielding a tape-wrapped chisel and Leopold rope. This was no fraternity house prank. They fully intended to bludgeon, tie up, and even shoot anyone who confronted them. Loeb was very familiar with both the layout and behavior of the ZBT house and the frat members who lived there. A party would have transpired the previous evening, an event that celebrated the Michigan Wolverines football game earlier in the day. 
By 3 a.m., this function would have wound down, the participants having retreated to bunk beds on the third floor. Loeb cased the first floor guest rooms, which were unoccupied, and then the two proceeded to the second floor, where members would undress and hang their clothes. They quickly swept through each room, normally used communally for studying or conversation. Various wallets, watches, and other valuables were strewn on desks and tables, the two intruders quickly removing them. An Underwood typewriter was also stolen, and just as quickly as they entered, the two crept back to their car, parked within a few hundred feet. Their haul, $73, a few trinkets, and the typewriter. While hitting a liquor-filled flask, the two argued over burglarizing a second frat house. Loeb was satisfied and wanted to head back to Chicago. Leopold insisted. Their second objective was not as rewarding. They stole a camera but could hear snoring from the second floor and didn't proceed any further. Within minutes, they were headed back to Chicago, arriving in mid-morning. Leopold was irritable on the ride home, considering the negligible results of the burglary, certainly beneath their Superman capabilities. He implored Loeb that they should think bigger and devise a plot that was both the perfect crime and extremely lucrative. It was his suggestion that the perfect crime should involve both kidnapping and murder, Although they spent a great deal of time discussing exactly who their potential victim should be, including their own fathers, eventually they dismissed this aspect of the crime as unimportant, something they would decide whenever the opportunity arose. Instead, they focused on the logistics of the crime, devising a process for retrieval of ransom money, notification of the victim's family, and acquisition of a rental car via a false identity as Leopold's bright red car was too recognizable and Loeb's car was being repaired after a collision. Most disturbing was their selection of a spot to dump a body, the two teenagers meticulously searching the Wolf Lake area until they found the culvert running under a railroad track. Despite having spent a great deal of time in the area, Leopold had never been aware of this spot and reasoned that no one else would know of it either. It would also save the two the effort of digging a grave for the victim, a task they found distasteful. The two also hit on the idea of using hydrochloric acid on the corpse to inhibit the process of identifying the deceased. As winter ended and spring began, the two took the step of actually preparing the ransom notes that they would use during the ransom procedure. Not knowing exactly who their victim would be, they only put the salutation of Dear Sir on the letter that was then sealed inside of an envelope. These letters were typed on the portable, stolen from the University of Michigan. On May 21st, after finishing his classes, Leopold met Loeb at 11 a.m. They then proceeded downtown where Leopold rented an automobile using a fake identity involving the pseudonym Morton D. Ballard. They collected a wrapped chisel, rags, rope, hydrochloric acid, and some hip waiter boots from Leopold's house and left Leopold's red Willie's Night automobile in the garage. After lunch at a restaurant, Loeb and Leopold parked in the vicinity of the Harvard School, Loeb entering the school at about 2.15 to observe any potential victims. As a former student and neighborhood resident, he would not have attracted any suspicion. He did not see any obvious victims and eventually returned to the parked automobile. For almost three hours, the two observed various children at neighborhood playgrounds, even identifying some suitable victims from a distance. But these subjects left en masse before Loeb and Leopold could implement an abduction. It was approximately 5 o'clock when the two teenagers cruising the neighborhood near the Harvard School spotted Bobby Franks on Ellis Avenue. Realizing immediately that he was the perfect victim, they doubled back. Loeb actually knew the 14-year-old. He was even a distant cousin, and when Bobby declined an offer of a ride home, Loeb told him he wanted to discuss a tennis racket. The Franks child had even played tennis on the Loeb family court the Franks' home practically across the street from the Loeb mansion. Because they made separate confessions, Leopold and Loeb both implicated the other in the actual killing of Bobby Franks. 
In his version, Loeb claimed that he was driving. Leopold was in the back seat, and when Loeb convinced Bobby to hop in, Dickie opened the door. Once Loeb made the turn off of Ellis Avenue, Leopold put one arm over the mouth of Bobby and hit him hard with the wooden end of the chisel, bludgeoning him practically unconscious. With the Frank's child bleeding profusely and moaning, Leopold quickly dragged him into the back seat and shoved some rags down the boy's throat. Loeb then proceeded in the direction of Wolf Lake. Eventually, Leopold, satisfied that Bobby was certainly unconscious, if not dead, got into the front seat after covering Bobby with a robe brought for that purpose. When they reached a road they considered deserted enough, they stopped and removed Frank's shoes, pants, socks, and belt, wanting to minimize this process when it came time to hide the body. They dumped Frank's shoes and belt into some underbrush and kept the pants and stockings in the car. They then stopped for soda and sandwiches, essentially killing time until it was dark. At this point, Loeb claimed that Leopold asked to drive, perhaps because he was more familiar with the area around the lake. Leopold quickly found the culvert area, and using the robe, they transported the body to the vicinity of the channel. It was their intent to ensure that Franks was dead by smothering him with ether, but rigor mortis was already setting in, and they found this unnecessary. Leopold took off his jacket and put on the wading boots. Although dark, it was still light enough to proceed without a flashlight. They stripped the body of any remaining clothing, poured hydrochloric acid on it, and then shoved it head first into the culvert. They both then washed their hands, which were quite bloody from this effort, retrieved the robe and Frank's clothes, and headed home, the time approximately 9 p.m. On the way, they mailed the ransom note that would be received the next day. When they reached Loeb's house, they burned the clothing in a furnace tried to scrub the rental car of any stains, and then proceeded to a drugstore. It was here that Leopold made the first call that was received by Mrs. Franks. At some point, they tossed the chisel out of the car, and Leopold dropped off Loeb at his house at approximately 1 a.m. after the two had a few drinks at the Leopold home. The next day, the two intended on implementing their fairly complicated scheme of getting Nathan Franks to toss the ransom off of a moving elevated train. But when they saw headlines concerning the discovery of the boy's body and Mr. Franks did not show up at the drugstore, they presumed correctly that the Franks had determined that their son was already dead. The only remaining tasks were returning the rental car and destroying and tossing the typewriter off of a bridge into a deep body of water. Crow concluded the interrogation by reading both confessions to Loeb and Leopold and then asked about contradictions within the two accounts. Leopold first focused on some Picayune address mistakes, but then adamantly claimed that Loeb had actually wielded the chisel and that the crime was all Dickie's idea. This process degenerated into a shouting match between the two boys, each blaming the other for the actual murder and their current predicament. Crow finished by eliciting from both Leopold and Loeb that their confessions were obtained without duress or physical abuse, a statement to which both boys readily agreed. It was then that Crow left his office and made his triumphant statement to the press. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the Leopold Loeb case. Information for this podcast came from the books Leopold and Loeb, The Crime of the Century by Hal Higdon and Arrested Adolescence, The Secret Life of Nathan Leopold by Eric Rabain. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. Follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige. And also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Music